the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in to the show again. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind, questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it. Uh, anything going on in your life, we'll do the best that we can to answer. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our primary number. It's 340-9585. Hey, we've only got a couple of more days, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday um, before Paula and I will be on vacation. But Paula will be here tomorrow for the date, the edition of the program. Uh, Pastor Ken will be filling in for me uh, for the first week, and his wife May will be uh, on the program on Thursday. And then the following week, we will do some repeat broadcasts, and hopefully I'll have something really cool to talk to you about when I get back from vacation. We're tired and we're ready, but uh, we've got three Bible studies tonight, Friday and Sunday, and then we are on vacation. Um, so we appreciate your prayers. Um, Let's get to questions. The first one, anonymous. Says, How can I get rid of lustful sexual thoughts? Anonymous, I don't think that we can get rid of them. Um, we can control them. We can take those thoughts captive. But I don't think we can con- get rid of them completely because a lot of the time, I mean, if you purpose in your heart to do the best you can to think only about godly things. Uh, there's always going to be an enemy there who's going to be pushing buttons and planting thoughts into your heart and into your mind. And uh, I, I think rather than hoping that they just go away, what we need to do is ask for the Lord's help in controlling those thoughts. Now, this is a really practical anonymous, so I, I hope this really helps. If ugly thoughts come in, it doesn't be sexual thoughts, just ugly thoughts come in. If gossip comes floating into your mind, if, if bad thoughts toward people come into your mind, you have to be able to identify the source of those thoughts. And, and if it's the enemy, he's always trying to trip you up. So what you do is simply say, Lord, I don't want to think about that today. What I want to think about is you. I want to spend my time with you. Let me tell a quick story on myself, Anonymous, just this morning as I was uh, out doing my running and walking and praying with the Lord. 
um, um, just this this weird thought came into my mind. It wasn't anything sexual or lustful, but it was it was about a circumstance that that probably will never occur. And I, I again, just no reason for that kind of a thought. And so automatically, my mind kicked into gear. And what I was doing is like going over all these scenarios. And and I bet I spent five minutes going over these scenarios. Well, if this would happen, I'd do this, or I'd tell the people this. And and uh, all of a sudden, I thought, wait a minute. This is probably never going to happen. I don't want to spend any time on this. I want to talk to you, Lord. I want to hear from you today. And so it's just sort of a, a reboot. Paula will be smiling now when she hears me say that. That's her word. It's just sort of a reboot. And we have to do that many times during the day. Because if we don't, then our brains just get carried away. And Satan, who's a master manipulator of our thoughts, is going to do everything that he can to to bring our thoughts away from the things of God. So just know, because this is what the word of God says, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. That means we don't have to give in to those thoughts. It doesn't mean that we even have to feel guilty about those thoughts. Just understand that this isn't something that you wanted to come into your mind. It's just there. So control it. Take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. So take the thought captive. And that's what I did this morning. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to um, uh, plan a speech to somebody. I don't want to plan plan a a counseling session. Lord, right, right now I'm here just to talk to you. And Anonymous, if you're out there with Jesus, when those thoughts come, wherever you are when those thoughts come, be with Jesus, and the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, and you can control those thoughts. And part of this is discipline and training, but the other part of this is just finding out how much better every day is the more of that day you spend with Jesus. I think too often our approach to being tempted is to say, God, take this away from me. Uh, I've got people in the church that have been begging God to take cigarettes away from him, begging him to take away the desire for alcohol, begging him to take away um, lust, as you've asked about Anonymous. And my response to them is always the same. He already took those things away at the cross. You have victory over those things. So all you have to do now is run to Jesus with them. Dump those ugly thoughts at his feet and he'll replace them with thoughts of God. So I hope that makes sense to you. It's really practical. It's just something that we have to practice. And please, if you're like most people, uh, as a Christian, we feel even guilty. We feel like we've sinned when we've had the thought. There's nothing sinful about a thought. A sin happens when we give in to that thought or when we linger on that thought. But having the thoughts doesn't mean that you're not a good Christian. It doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus. It just means you live in a world and you are now aware of the, 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 the force of the spiritual warfare that we encounter every single day. Remember, Satan's whole purpose in a day is to get you away from Jesus so he can pound you. That ought to drive us to stay closer to Jesus every single day. And we can experience the victory. So I hope that helps. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Barry. He says, David was a man after God's heart. So why did he ask God to create in him a pure heart in Psalm 51? Well, Barry, that's a pretty simple answer. Uh, David's heart wasn't very pure. Now, you remember the circumstances. This is after his um, confrontation with Nathan the prophet. Uh, Nathan comes in, tells David a story. Uh, David has been trying to cover up his uh, affair with Bathsheba um, for, for nine months to a year. We don't know exactly how long it was. Bathsheba now is pregnant. And David, in trying to hide his sin, his heart got harder and harder and harder as he grew more and more distant from the Lord. So when Nathan comes in and points a finger and says, David, you're the man in the story. Instantly, David repents. 
against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. Psalm 51 is a psalm that we ought to have uh, always at our fingertips because when we fall into sin, this is the only way to respond. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. And David, who had lived in misery, trying to cover his sin up, now being publicly embarrassed, publicly shamed by Nathan, he's finally free. And he's free because he accepts responsibility. Surely I was sinful from the beginning, sinful in my mother's womb. And in the process, he asked for forgiveness. And the result of being forgiven means fellowship with God is restored. And so David was able to say then, and I'm going to add some liberties here to help you understand my answer. But David would say, Lord, I feel like such a failure. I feel so dirty inside. I've been separated from you for a long time. All of the joy I once had is gone. So then he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew within me a right spirit. Create in me a pure heart. You see, David understood that by asking for forgiveness, by confessing sins, that our sins are forgiven. It's a very New Testament concept for an Old Testament Jew. And yet, what he was looking forward to by faith, we very get to enjoy every single day. So David was simply saying, give me a new start, Lord. And again, you and I, Barry, we get a new start every single day as we ask God to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So David failed, failed horribly, but David had the faith to understand what forgiveness was all about. He had the faith to believe in the character of God and the eagerness of God to forgive. And he wanted to be sure to take advantage of it. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible, Barry simply because it's so practical for us every single day. Every single day. Here is a question from Bruce. If God knows we're going to sin, why doesn't he stop us from sinning? Um, Bruce, because we have free will. It's very important to understand. God's job is not to stop us from sinning. God's job as it relates to believers is to forgive us when we sin if we confess and ask for it but his job isn't to stop us from sinning imagine if god just could stop us from sinning right now he would do that by removing our free will we'd sort of be like little christian robots running around and we'd be guilty even if we didn't sin we'd be guilty from the desire to sin And so the idea here, Bruce, is that God wants us to choose every day not to sin. Paul says to the church at Rome, we're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And we get to make that choice every day. And choice is the important element here. Because if God just removed any possibility of sinning from us, well, the result would be that we would not be doing anything for the Lord of our own free will, we'd be doing it because we're compelled to do it. God wants us to know that he's more important than sin is to us. God wants us to know how much he loves us. He wants us to respond to that love by obedience. And it's just not God's job to stop us from sinning. It wasn't long ago, Bruce, that I had a question similar to this. It was, Well, why did God create Adam and Eve if he knew they were going to sin? Um, The answer is he created them for his good pleasure. He created them to see the majesty of his handiwork. He created them for fellowship. He walked with them in the cool of the garden. He didn't refuse to create them because he knew they were going to mess up. He already had a plan of salvation. So just as Adam and Eve had a choice to make after God showed them the one tree they couldn't eat, 
You and I, we have a choice every day, Bruce. Every day. Sin or to serve Jesus. You can't do both. So what choice are you going to make? And if we had no choice in the choice, I hope that makes sense, then how could we be pleasing to God? The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. We wouldn't need faith, would we, if God just programmed us to do what he wanted us to do. 340-9585. This week the phones have been quiet. We'd sure like some calls and questions. 340-9585. This is a question from Ida. Why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I know what they did was wrong, but the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Um, the, the, the punishment does fit the crime, and let me explain why, Ida. Um, this happens in Acts chapter 5. By this time, the early church is thriving. It's a brand new church. Um, 3,000 were saved on the first day, 5,000 more uh, a few days later. But, but I mean, these, the, the apostles were turning the, the, the world around Jerusalem upside down, right side up, we would say. And people were getting saved, converts from Judaism. Now, remember, the church was completely Jewish in the beginning, and they were deserting in droves Judaism and coming to faith in, in the Messiah. They came to believe that Jesus was the Christ that they were waiting for and missed. And this gave them real, real hope. So the enemy tried to stop it with persecution from without. He did everything he could to stir up trouble in the, in the city so that Christians were being persecuted. The church was being persecuted. It was dangerous to be a Christian in the brand new church. And when the persecution from without didn't meet with the success the enemy hoped. He changed his tactic. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll attack it from within. And Ananias and Sapphira were the first example of hypocrisy coming into the church of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to imagine, Ida, because we are so used to hypocrites and people living lukewarm lives, and that is, by definition, hypocritical. But in the early church, with all that danger, you had to be serious about your relationship with Jesus. This wasn't a situation where um, there were lukewarm believers or non-committed believers. People were, were really risking their lives. And they had this great community, this great fellowship, as a result, because they knew they couldn't go to family members, they couldn't return to their old lives. So the, the church, as it was exploding in growth, was really their, their safety valve. And after Barnabas brought in some money from land that he sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, in effect what he was saying was, um, sold some land, do with this what you want. It would hand it to the apostles and trust them to do the right thing with his gift. And he was just thrilled. And imagine how everybody would have been overwhelmed with gratitude. I can just see Barnabas now being patted on the back and other people talking about this gift. Did you see what Barnabas did? He sold the land. He sold it for a fortune. He gave all the money to the to the apostles. And, and we're going to eat now. We're going to be cared for now. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, who evidently were husband and wife of means, they loved what they saw. Barnabas was generous. That's great. But look at how the people are talking about him. Look at how they're admiring him. And one of the two, and I believe it was Ananias, would have said something along the lines of this to his wife, Sapphira. He would have said, you know, we're believers. I want people to think of us as being generous. So how about this? How about we sell something and we tell them, just like Barnabas did, to give away all of our stuff. But we'll keep half of it and hold it back. And so they entered into a conspiracy. 
And as soon as they tried, the Holy Spirit gave a word of knowledge to Peter. They continue to lie. In fact, Peter says, you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And he was killed instantly. Some time goes by. Sapphira has a chance to think about it, to talk about it. She comes in to find out what happened. So Peter says, hey, did you and Ananias and sell the property for such and such a price? Yes, we did. And then he did the same thing, pronounced her death sentence as well. Now, a couple of things, Ida, this is important, at least from my perspective, because I've wrestled with this over the years. I believe the judgment was so harsh because God was making a one-time forever statement about his thoughts about hypocrisy in his holy church. I mean, this was a holy church. This was a church that was without compromise. And suddenly, compromise walked in the door in the form of Ananias and Sapphira. And God showed his people, by the way, I he showed you and me as well, how he feels about hypocrisy in the church. Now, here's the part I've struggled with. Over the years, I've gone back and forth. I've been saved 28 years, and the story's always fascinated me. I've gone back and forth thinking, well, I don't think they were real believers, or, well, maybe they were. To now, I really do believe, Ida, that they were believers, and we're going to see them in heaven. And thinking about this over the years, it's, at least from my perspective, probably the reason that the punishment was so harsh. Judgment begins at the house of God. This is not a victimless crime. The holy church that Barnabas could give all of his money to was suddenly stained with sin from the inside. And I think God judged them harshly just before he took him to heaven. I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira, when they got to Jesus, would have said, boy, that was harsh. Now, of course, they wouldn't because we're not going to be able to stand in front of God and make excuses. But here's what I know they learned at that moment. I know they learned that God is serious about holiness in his church. So that's why the punishment did fit the crime. God wanted you and me to know how important it is to him that we walk in righteousness. And especially in his house, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's very, very, very important to God. That's why this whole idea of a backslidden Christian or a lukewarm Christian always is offensive to me, Ida. The stakes are really, really high. Joshua says, 1 John 4, 1, what does it mean to test the spirits? Um, Joshua, the, the context of John, his first epistle especially, is he's, he's battling the heresy of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism uh, in that day was a, a, a sort of a, a considered to be a super spiritual type of people uh, who believed that what we did in our flesh didn't matter, that God is a spirit and he's only concerned with things of the spirit. And in fact, they denied, the Gnostics did, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They would say, no, he only appeared to be flesh, he only appeared to be a human but in fact, he wasn't. It's just the way he manifests himself to us. And their reasoning would be that flesh and spirit don't have anything in common, and the flesh is inherently bad, and since God is good, um, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. That's the heresy that John was addressing. So what he's saying to the people in, in writing this epistle is, you know, there's a lot of spirits out there that are shouting things through false teachers, um, uh, the, the enemy speaking to hearts. Um, when you hear teaching 
test that teaching because there are evil spirits that are trying to cause confusion, that are trying to cause pain. And what he wants you to do is very simple. He wants us to open our Bibles and when somebody tells us something is true, find out for ourselves if it is. Now, Joshua, let me say this to you because uh, this is the one thing that Christians just don't do. Somebody seems smart. They've been walking with the Lord for a while. We just automatically assume that they know more than we do and we don't test the spirits. But there's a lot of lying spirits out there. And God says you don't have to be deceived. You've got the word, the living word of God. You've got the written word of God, the full, complete revelation. So we don't have to be tricked. And so to test the spirits means that what we hear or what we're taught, we compare with what is communicated to us in the Word of God. Discernment matters a great deal. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls. You're a lot more interesting than I am. 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 here is a question from samuel he wants to know are deliverance ministries legit Samuel, the answer is no, no, a thousand times no. And you should know this, Samuel. Unless you've been saved just a a week, you should know this. Here's why. This is what matters more than anything else as it relates to this question. To receive Jesus Christ into your heart means you have been delivered already once for all. Delivered once for all. So these deliverance ministries that cast out demons and break generational curses. By the way, generational curses aren't real either. These are a perfect illustration of the last question we had about testing the spirits. All you have to do is look in your Bible and you're going to find out that that. We don't need to be delivered because we already have. Now, I understand the appeal of deliverance ministries. They're appealing because it gives an excuse to sin. If I'm under the control of a foreign object or a foreign thing, well, then it's not my fault. We don't feel bad. It's like going to AA instead of recognizing that being a drunk is a sin. Well, I'm going to go around a bunch of people who will be sympathetic with me. Please don't give me emails about AA and your AA experiences. If you got saved in an AA experience, it's great. God is very gracious. But the whole concept is anti-biblical. The idea of being delivered from something that Jesus died for, or the need to be delivered once we already have been delivered, is just inherently wicked, Samuel. So no, deliverance ministries are not legit. They're to be avoided at all costs. Just open your Bible, learn what God has done for you. Think about Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans, just the promises he makes us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that for a moment. Can an enemy... A demon be against us? Now, they hate us for sure. But we've got the power that raised Christ from the dead living in us. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. How about this one? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Isn't it true most of us would settle for just being a conqueror? No, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because there's a new sheriff in town. 
the person of the Holy Spirit living in us. So Samuel, we have been delivered once for all. We don't need to be delivered again and again and again. While demons can huff and puff and threaten to blow our house down, while demons can oppress us, they certainly cannot possess us. And we don't have to be afraid of them. Because Jesus has delivered us once and for all. Sage asked this question, how can I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Well, a couple of ways, Sage. Uh, I'll start with the practical way. If you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that upon being born again, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. Read Colossians chapter 2. The fullness of the Godhead in bodily form has been given to us, lives in us. That's Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you are saved, if you've been born again, then you have the Holy Spirit given. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 says, the reason it was given to you is as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. Now that's God who's making that guarantee. So you just have to know by faith. It's not something you feel. It's not something that you have to experience. It's certainly not getting goosebumps. But we have to know that because God said it in his word, that it's true, and then all we have to do is have the faith to believe it. That's the first way. The second way you know you have the Holy Spirit, and I'll never forget this in, in my conversion, Sage. Um, and, and my conversion was pretty dramatic in the sense, I mean, I was all alone, but, but it was uh, just me and Jesus on a public street. Um, I was not a nice person. I was selfish. I was a jerk. And when I met Jesus, I got up off that street. I was different. I was changed. And apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no way to change. Now, I didn't have to go to Bible studies in order to be changed. I was changed when, and I, it was in a, a full frontal attack. So I always say this, when, when Jesus stormed the citadel of my heart, I had a fort put up so that God couldn't get in, but he stormed it and he overtook it. And because I met him, I was different. I wasn't perfect. All my bad habits didn't go away. But I was different. Suddenly I cared what people thought. Suddenly I cared about the people. I didn't care about anybody but me before that. But suddenly I cared about people. I loved them. I, I couldn't explain it. It didn't make any sense to me logically. But I had these emotions, these feelings for people. And I remember Sage looking into people's eyes, I'd walk by them wherever I was, on the streets, in the store, whatever I was, even at work, whatever I was doing. I'd look at people in the eye, and the only thing I could think about was, do they know Jesus? I didn't think, oh, there's a good-looking woman, or, or there's a guy with a nice suit. I, I didn't think those things. I just looked into their eyes. I wanted to see into their hearts. I was asking the Lord to, to show me, do they know you? I want to tell them about you. And certainly the selfish jerk that I was, never caring about anybody but me, at that point, I was completely a different person. Not a new, improved version of the old me. I was completely a different person. And I knew that with the presence of Jesus in another form, the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, hope of glory, I knew that I'd been changed. The third way, Sage, and I know this may sound a little redundant, but, but I'm going to approach it from a different perspective. It's just this idea of love. Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God was poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit that he gave me. And all I had to do was believe that love was in me and then just have enough faith to, 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 to go retrieve it. And I was suddenly not only concerned with with what people thought and what people said, but I only wanted the best for people. I loved them. Uh, I, I, I started 
hugging people. I, I was never a real hugger, but I started hugging people. Even today, I hug people. If it's somebody that I haven't met before, I get a lot of people that bring people up to introduce them in the church. I always tell people, look, I'm a hugger, but is, if that's okay, if it's not okay, I, I'm okay with that. And almost always they say, oh, I'm a hugger too, and, and, and we can make people feel really warm. I, I never did those things. I remember, Sage, watching people, men especially in church, singing. I thought, what are these men doing? We Men don't act like that. And I'd see men with their arms raised in the air during worship. I'd see tears flowing down their cheeks. And I thought that was such a sign of weakness. I actually remember stuffing my hands in my pocket stage because I vowed that my hands weren't going to be raised. I don't want anybody to look at me and think that's what a man is supposed to be like. And you know what? I couldn't keep my hands in my pockets. I was so grateful. That's how I knew I had the Holy Spirit. Last thing I developed a ravenous appetite for the Word of God. So Sage, open your Bible. Expect to meet Jesus every time you do. And I promise you, you will know beyond any doubt that you have the Holy Spirit. Before zero, 95, 85. Sage, I really appreciate that question. Janet says, Pastor Ron, if you had one book, only one book to study the Gospels, what would it be? Um, It would be a book called The Life and the Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. It is available online, public domain. Um, It is uh, not a, a light book, a simple book. But it is a book that I personally believe every Christian who's interested in studying the Gospels ought to go through. You know, one of the things that we have to really do when we're studying the Gospels is we've got to put every study in context. We've got to understand the Jewishness of the book. We've got to understand the, 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 the Jewish thought process of the times. Um, we, we've got to understand to whom Jesus was speaking give you one example, Janet, um, the Sermon on the Mount. I watch Christians tie themselves in knots trying to live the Sermon on the Mount when the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to demonstrate that we can't live like that. That's why we need Jesus. And yet there's so many of us who are so bent on proving that I can do it, I can do it, that we fail and the enemy is there to Keep condemnation on us. And Edersheim's book is a strictly Jewish view of the life, life and times of Jesus. And it breaks his life down into three main areas. Now there's more in there than that, but it's it's uh, from the beginning uh, all the way into his descent into what Edersheim calls the Valley of Humiliation uh, as he approaches the cross. And the insight there is stunning, absolutely stunning. So that, to me, is the one book. Now, I hope you have more than one book. That That's by far the most viable one uh, in anybody's understanding of the gospel accounts. And I've read a lot of books, and I've got, I'm a, I, I used to be, when I could see better, a voracious reader. Um, but that's the one book that I just can't live without. Got lots of other good ones, but that's the one I can't live without. Here's a question from Jessica. My question is about irresistible grace. Do you believe it's true? Jessica, the answer is no, it's not true. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment, Jess. Jessica, I'm sorry. I don't know you, so I shouldn't take that liberty. Um, Paul tells us to quench not the Holy Spirit of God. If grace was irresistible, then he wouldn't have to say that. Jesus talks about people 
Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I tell you to do? John, Peter, Paul, they all talk about that battle between flesh and spirit. If God's grace was irresistible, it would mean, by definition, that we're always doing what God wants us to do. Now, I understand this is a part of the Calvinist doctrine. The eye in tulip is for irresistible grace. And all we have to do is look around in this world and talk to people and we see his grace being resisted every single day. What saddens me the most, Jessica, is that that grace, that daily grace, it's a wonderful picture given to us in the, in the Exodus wilderness, the manna that, that showed up every day. Grace is poured out in every one of our lives and still we say no. We do what we want instead of what he wants. And if grace was truly irresistible for the real believer, we wouldn't be able to have that choice. Another way the Calvinist views irresistible grace is that if God has chosen you, you have no say-so in the matter. The balanced view of Calvinism as opposed to Arminianism is that yes, God's choice of us is based on what he knows about us, foreknowledge, Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first couple of verses. But we know that he chose me because he knew that I would choose him back. And I resisted his grace for a very, very long time, and I finally surrendered because he sort of let me alone with myself, gave me over to my own heart. And things got desperate enough, and a lot of people's prayers were answered. So irresistible grace is not true. Uh, it is the second biggest issue I have with the five points of Calvinism. The biggest issue is limited atonement. Jesus only died for the sins of the elect rather than the sins of the world when the Bible so clearly says Jesus died for the sins of the world. So it's not true. Jessica, you would do yourself a favor to avoid it altogether. Just read your Bible. Don't get your systematic theology from somebody who already has one. Read the Bible for yourself and let the Spirit of God develop your own systematic theology. I didn't start out to be a Calvinist. I didn't start out to be an Arminianist. I just devoured my Bible and I found the balance in it. And as I say in this program, quite often the balance is the only safe place to be. Extremes are really, really dangerous and certainly Calvinism and uh, the issue of limited atonement or irresistible grace in particular are way extreme positions that cannot be supported by Scripture. Simply cannot be supported. Dominic asks a question that's going to be really hard for me. He says, can you discuss humility in general and what it looks like in the life of a Christian? Dominic, this is difficult for me to discuss because uh, I'm not Moses. I can't, uh, I can't write about myself on the most humble man in the world and still be the most humble man in the world. Um, uh, I hope and pray that I walk in humility. Um, I think our tendency, our predisposition is to give ourselves way too much credit. That's why Paul says, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And in this particular case, humility is just only found in the presence of the Lord. I used to think I was really important. I used to think that I was a big shot. A lot of people that worked for me and I controlled a lot of people's lives, had a lot of power in a worldly sense. But I was so miserable. I was so empty. And what I found out, Dominic, was the more time that I spend with me, the more boastful, the more full of myself I became. When I got saved, I found out just the opposite is true. The more time I spend with Jesus, the more I realize how little I am. I used to call it 
my own personal doctrine of littleness. Um, even now, um, when people say nice things to me, um, I sort of internally wink at Jesus because I know the truth and he knows the truth. And there's nothing good in my flesh and I know that the only thing I can do without the power of God's Spirit is cause pain. And so I think we have to have an honest assessment of who we are. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I just don't know where we can boast about ourselves. I think humility is the practice of understanding who he is, how big he is, and how little we are. And what does humility look like in the life of a Christian? I think one of those things that we have difficulty describing, but when we see true humility, we know it. Humility is very attractive, very appealing. So when we see somebody who's truly humble. I've got some people in our church, Dominic, who have amazing skills in this world. Um, God bless my worship pastor, Pastor Elaine. Um, and then you wouldn't know he could do anything at all. And we have to remember that we're to be humble in the presence of the Lord. If we're in his presence, we have no other choice. Think of Jocelyn, Pastor Lane's wife, who was a, um, a, a renowned recording star before she got saved. And now people are coming out of the woodwork to, to have her do concerts and things again. And she used to come to me and she'd say, but how do I stay humble? When people are cheering and when people want me to come and perform, how do I stay humble? And my answer to her was, you've been with Jesus. You won't have any problems staying humble. So I, I, I again, I think humble, humility is something that we recognize when we see it. And all of us should strive to be humble. The Bible says humble yourself or God will do it. We don't want God to have to humble us, so we need to really, really pursue humility. So, Dominic, I don't know if that's what you were looking for. I hope that answers your question. Here is an anonymous question. I'm going to sound harsh again. Pastor Ron, what is the Christian response to being in a loveless marriage? Now, by a Christian response, I mean, how do you deal with it? I'm assuming anonymous, that's what you're asking me. Um, the Christian response to being in a loveless marriage is to repent. That is a sin, a practical day after day, repeating sin. So repent. And normally when I respond to people in my church like that, well, what about him or what about her? This isn't about him or her. This is about you and Jesus. And you have the power, Anonymous, to change your loveless marriage in an instant. Now, I think probably what you're trying to do is change him or her, your spouse. You don't have the power to do that. Only God does. But you have the power to bring love into that marriage. And I often tell people in difficult marriage counseling situations that God is looking for one person in that marriage to stand up and rightly represent him. The only way we can do that, the only way we can do that is say, okay, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Earlier I had the question about David and his psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. If you're in loveless marriage, that means loveless, by definition, means you don't love him, he doesn't love you. You need to repent right now before God. And say, Lord, forgive me, that's a sin. If you're the wife, the Bible says, wives love your husbands. If you're a husband, the Bible says, husbands love your wives. If you're not doing that, you're in sin. And until you repent, until you accept responsibility for what you've done, what you've allowed to happen, 
Until that happens, nothing is going to change. I've only got a couple of minutes left, um, so, so let me just sort of close with this thought. I can't even begin to imagine how painful it is for Jesus, and I say that I know how painful it is for me when I see Christians, and I'm talking about people that I really believe to be saved, and they're settling for less than the marriage God wants them to experience. We just get to the point where we feel so helpless. I can't change him. I can't change her. God says, but how about changing you? Let me change you. And then I can use you to change the marriage. I can use you to change your spouse. But we know we pray to God, God, give us a marriage full of love. But, but if, if we're just waiting for him to change the marriage without expecting that first we have to be changed, then we're the ones who are completely missing the point. So if you're in a loveless marriage, repent. Accept responsibility before God for what you've done. Recognize that your lukewarmness in the marriage is a sin against God and God alone. And then he'll begin to work on you. And let him work on you. You might find your spouse being worked on at the same time. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Again, the phones were really, really quiet. I guess it's summer vacation, but I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow, the date day edition, meaning Paula will be live in studio. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.